Wisconsin's afternoon news is on the air. Broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. Here's John McCure. All right. Sandy Max is here. Greg Matzik's here. Debbie Lazica is here. Adam Roberts is here. My goodness, everybody is here. We hope you're having a fantastic Wednesday. What are we tracking today? This is the three. At three on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, Sandy, where should we start? Milwaukee Mitchell Airport. Seeing an uptick in travelers ahead of one of the busiest travel days of the year. Airport Director of Public Affairs, Harold Mester, explains. The busiest day is going to be this Saturday when we have more than two dozen flights heading to places like Florida, Arizona, Mexico, the Caribbean. Southwest has a lot of flights to those places along with Spirit, Sun Country, Apple and FunJet. Uh, so it's going to be very busy and Saturday will be the busiest day with more than 12,000 passengers departing from MKE. 12,000, that's a lot of people this Saturday. Big days also on Friday and on Sunday and the biggest day coming back will be one week from Saturday. It's actually not the Sunday, but the Saturday. A lot of people travel from Saturday to Saturday. You heard Harold there mention the warm weather destinations. These are the top warm weather destinations from Milwaukee this Saturday. Okay. There will be 10 flights on Saturday to Orlando. Six flights to Fort Myers, six flights to Phoenix, five flights to Tampa, three to Fort Lauderdale, a couple of flights to Cancun, one to Sarasota, and one direct flight to Jamaica. That is a lot of families heading to Florida. Oh, man, that sounds like fun. (laughs) So that will be Saturday. If you're heading to the airport on Saturday, uh, they recommend you buy your parking ahead of time and that you get there early because it is going to be busy at the airport. All right, what's the second thing? The Green Bay City Council approving two community leader agreements for the NFL draft bid that will be submitted by the Packers. So the agreements outline a series of responsibilities the city would have to carry out and pay for if chosen by the NFL for the draft. So if the NFL says we're coming to your town, you have to pay the NFL to hold the draft, and there's a lot of expenses associated with it. The Packers have already said that they will pony up $1 million to help fund the event. And they say that corporate partners and Discover Green Bay, which is like the tourism arm up there, will also help for the draft. This would be such a big deal. This would be so exciting. And the Packers have actually visited places like Vegas and Cleveland that have hosted the draft in the past. Interesting nugget. The NFL has to invite cities to apply. You can't just apply. So if you're invited to apply, it's an indicator that you're on the very short list to host an NFL draft. This would be so cool if Green Bay hosted the draft. It's nuts on those nights. Yeah. What's the third thing? Oh, music fans. (laughs) Keep an eye out for a big list coming out tomorrow morning. Less than 100 days until Summerfest gets rolling. Man, that's hard to believe and awesome. On Thursday at 6 a.m., Summerfest releases a list of more than 100 headliners that will be at this year's festival. That's going to be... I'm going to get up early. List comes out at 6 a.m., so I'm going to be combing through that. To You're see going to be that. highlighting what you, I what you am. want to see. I am. I love that. I love that. It's, uh, I, I won't have to cross-reference what, what stages I can make it to yet, but at least get excited <laughs> about bands. But, I mean, so far the announcements have been Eric Church, Zach Brown Band, mm-hmm. Dave Matthews Band, Imagine Dragons, uh, Elvis Costello and the Imposters, Avid Brothers. James Taylor with Cheryl Crow. Yeah. Earth Cypress Hill Fire. for fun. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cheap Tricks. Oh, so they're off to a solid list. start. But tomorrow it's going to be uh, very exciting for music fans. It's going to be good stuff for sure. One of the things we do every year is we get a list of the acts that are there. And then because of our partnership with Summerfest, they give us the publicist for the acts. And every year we interview about a dozen artists 
that are going to be there, you're going to love this. It is I so am. much fun. I it's am. incredible. Yeah, I've got a few people on my wish list uh, as we speak. Yeah. Less than 100 days until the 55th anniversary for Summerfest kicks off. We, of course, are your Summerfest station. Keep it with us. We'll keep you up to speed on everything happening at the big gig. It is 314 at WTMJ. I'm excited to share this story with you up next. It's a story of a woman from western Wisconsin who is an American hero, a nurse in the Army who made the ultimate sacrifice, literally. And now there's a movement to get her the Medal of Honor. Story of Ellen Ainsworth up next. March is Women's History Month, and there's a special effort underway to recognize an American hero from western Wisconsin, a woman I want you to get to know. This is the story of Ellen Ainsworth. Young Ellen Ainsworth didn't have it easy. Born in 1919, she grew up during the Great Depression in small Glenwood City, Wisconsin, in the rolling hills 40 miles east of the Minnesota border. Despite food sometimes being scarce and opportunities even scarcer, one of Ellen's childhood friends says she had a special light. She was quick with a one-liner, the first to lead an impromptu sing-along, and was always fast to flash a smile. David Sandmeyer is a distant cousin of Ellen. So she was like almost like a bigger-than-life figure, living life to its fullest and never afraid in, in the darkest of scenarios. After high school, Ellen graduated nursing school and became a nurse in Minneapolis. On March 2nd, 1942, Ellen's life changed forever when an Army recruiter visited the hospital where she worked. A few days later, on her 23rd birthday, Ellen told her family it was her destiny to help our men and women on the battlefield overseas, and she enlisted. After training in Arkansas, Texas, and New York, Ellen shipped out for Italy, where she was assigned to the 56th Evacuation Hospital on the front lines in Anzio. The entire several months that the U.S. Army was there was basically hell, hell on earth. Ellen and her fellow nurses arrived in late January 1942. And immediately they faced intense artillery and mortar attacks. February 10th, 1944. The worst shelling yet occurred. And it mainly hit a field hospital very near to the 56th EVAC hospital. And it killed a number of people at that field hospital. The injured were brought to Ellen's field hospital, which was nothing more than a canvas tent with big red crosses painted on the roof and sides. Several large bombs landed nearby and shrapnel began to rain down on the tent where Ellen was working. Patients who are there who are well enough to be moved, they're removing those patients from the tent hospital into bunkers. But somebody has to stay behind and take care of the really ill patients who can't be moved. Under heavy bombing, as others fled, Ellen stayed. She calmly helped move those patients at least to the ground because shrapnel was coming almost at ground level, horizontally. You know, these bombs would explode and they'd send metallic shrapnel sideways, you know, like a few feet above the ground. So Ellen is in there on her shift, moving patients to the ground. In the chaos, Ellen stayed calm. 42 patients were moved calmly and collectively by, under her guidance, which prevented panic. A bomb shelter had been built for the nurses, but Ellen decided to stay in her tent because she wanted to be closer to the men she cared for. February 12, 1944. 
After another long shift under constant bombardment, Ellen collapsed from exhaustion in her tent. Within minutes, a uh, bomb hit, sent shrapnel sideways, and it had struck her in her tent. She took about a quarter diameter piece of shrapnel into her chest that apparently went down into her abdomen and caused pretty severe organ damage. She was rushed to the medical tent where she fought and struggled and eventually faded. Ellen gets worse and worse. Eventually she died on four days later on February 16th. Her death left that community grief-stricken for years. Sally Burkholder's father went to high school with Ellen in Glenwood City. Her death left such an impression on that community that even now today, you could go to Glenwood City, a population of about 1,200 people, and died, what, 80-some years ago, and just say Ellen, and they would know who you were talking about. Now the people of western Wisconsin are talking about how Ellen should receive the nation's highest military award for valor in action the Medal of Honor. Was Ellen Ainsworth a hero? Absolutely. In the case of Ellen, she had to die to prove herself, but I mean, it, it again, it opened up generations of opportunities for women to serve in the military, for women to go on and pursue advanced degrees. And it's not just in Glenwood City that they're pushing for Ellen to receive the Medal of Honor. I would argue this is long overdue. Dan Buttry is the president and CEO of the War Memorial in Milwaukee. The key is to protect and save and do something way above and beyond your requirement to save your fellow soldier. And there's no question what Ellen did at that time was to protect and save and stand there and go way beyond what was required of her. No woman has the Medal of Honor. Not one. Ellen would be the first. The Medal of Honor requires you to have gone beyond the call of duty in a position of extreme danger to aid others. And it's basically what she did. You know, had she decided to use that air raid shelter when she got off her shift, she'd gone to that shelter she probably would have survived. World War II veteran Senator Daniel Inouye once said, the nurses in World War II gave us hope. It's time for Ellen's country to give her the recognition she bravely and selflessly earned. The girl next door who left home for war and never came back. John Merkier, WTMJ News. So it's a process. Both of Wisconsin's U.S. Senators and U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany are working to get Ellen Ainsworth awarded the Medal of Honor. The process could take years. It's called the Congressional Medal of Honor. Congress needs to be involved. They need to make a case for her. There's lots of paperwork. There's lots of forms. There's a process. The military will investigate. They'll open her case. They'll look at everything that happened. If approved by Congress, the medal would be presented to Ainsworth's family by the President of the United States. And more than half of those that receive the Medal of Honor have it awarded after they've died, because many of them die as a result of the incident that they're being recognized for with the Medal of Honor. What a woman. An incredibly brave woman. And she's from Wisconsin. It could be the first one to receive the Medal of Honor as a woman. A powerful story that you've shared, and I think you make a very strong case. This is, uh, as they say, a no-brainer. This should it should definitely, definitely be happen. approved. And, and yes, and what a wonderful honor. And again, we were talking yesterday about the 20th anniversary of the Iraq conflict and just uh, uh, the selflessness of people. Yeah. And what a ex- spectacular example of dedication and selflessness. I mean, I always wonder 
if I was in a war situation, would I have that bravery? It's easy to say I would. I do the right thing. But to be faced with what she was faced with and to just do the right thing. Over and over. Yes. Knowing that there was a chance you weren't going to make it out, but she did it. I also want to give some recognition to Dan Buttrey. He's the guy in charge of the war memorial. You heard him in the piece there. He is leading the effort selflessly on top of all the other work that he does out there that's so important for our veterans in our community. He's leading the effort to get Ellen Ainsworth awarded the Medal of Honor. So thank you to him for doing that. If you'd like more information, you can go to WTMJ.com. You can hear the story again. It'll be posted there, and we can get you all sort of information. We'll keep you updated on how the journey to get Ellen Ainsworth the Medal of Honor proceeds. One, two, three, That's so fun. That makes me happy. That's just happy music. Now imagine you're a teenager and you buy a new album and (laughs) buy a band you've never heard of before. Put the needle down and this is what you hear. And the band's called The Beatles. Like, they're named after an insect. What is this? What? But it's a clever and band because this. it's B-E-A-T-L-E-S. 60 years ago today, 1963, is when the very first Beatles album was released. This album is 60 years old yep. today? Yep. Oh, my goodness. 32 minutes or so of music that changed and influenced the music world. Oh my gosh, for sure. It was the beginning of maybe the biggest influence in popular music, certainly in 100 years. That 60 years? Yeah. So McCartney, I just read somewhere, is 80. Okay. So that means he was 20. Wow, oh he was, yeah. He was 20 years old. They were all young and they had just spent out. all that time in Hamburg playing hours and hours in those late night clubs. What was the famous club? And there was a famous club in Hamburg where they always... Oh I, gosh. I can't that, the name that's of it. like surprise. That I don't know off the top of my head. I thought you say the Cavern Club Cavern in club. Liverpool. No, not in, Hover- not in Hamburg. Was that, in, that was in England Cavern somewhere, Club's right? in Liverpool. Okay. Wow. Yeah. This so, is so fun. I love this music. It's just... I have to look now. Um, the other thing was that all these songs were like two minutes long, which is amazing. They were all short little songs. and Yep. And most of them covers like this. Uh, the Indra Club is where the Beatles first played when they arrived in Hamburg and the Star Club. So was Please Please Me or Love Love Me? Love oh, Love Me Do is their very first single. Was this a cover? No. This was one of their originals. Yeah. Is that harmonica? It makes me happy. Yeah, it is harmonica. That is... Uh, Which guy played the harmonica? John Lennon. Wow. I love me, dude. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just this music just automatically, just it's emotional. And if you think about it, Twist and Shout is on this album. And wow. the pop culture ripple with it being used in Ferris Bueller's Day yeah. Off about 20 years yeah. later. You know, it's just this music is... Oh, this is on there, too? Yeah. That's what I mean. You're going to have to go home and crank this up. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, think about the Beatles. this song. Their first tour in 1964, they only did about 24 dates and included Milwaukee. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? There are people in Milwaukee who saw the Beatles at the arena in 1964. Yeah. I just, and this is, I mean, here's another interesting things about this Please Please Me album is that John Lennon said, this is pretty much the closest you're going to get to hearing us perform live, what we sounded like at that time. Because George Martin originally wanted to record them at the Cavern Club, but it just was too muddy. You know, they didn't have the technology then. Yeah, yeah. And so this is as close as you're going to get to what they sounded like in Hamburg, playing their originals and covers. Here's another mind-blowing fact. 
They go to Studio 2 at Abbey Road, the historic studio, which I visited, and you just walk in there and you feel all this. Mm-hmm. They walk in there at 10 a.m. on a February day. They walk out at 10 p.m. About 13 hours, nonstop, they didn't even break for lunch, and recorded this entire album. The whole album in mm-hmm. one long session? Wow. Yeah. So I grew up at a Beatles house, so this is yeah. what was in my house all the time when I was a little kid. <laughs> my boyfriend remembers so like being baby satch and his cool babysitter had this album and they just played it over and over again. And it's just music that it either takes you back or it, you don't have to be. It, this appeals to all ages. I just can't believe how many hits were on this very first album. And they didn't even release this album in America. This was in the top ten Top 10 for over a year in Britain, and that was a record for a debut album for about 50 years. Wow. And this is the song that John Lennon practically wrecked his voice for the rest of his life. He had a cold when they recorded this for this 13-hour session, and he was actually embarrassed by this for a while, but he wrecked his voice so badly that his throat felt like sandpaper, and he said, even after it, like every time I swallowed, and I thought I'd ruin my voice. Yeah, there's such an unpolished sort of cleanliness to it if you want to go Purity, that way yeah uh, absolutely where it's just it's some of the Beatles songs are a little more bubblegummy and this felt a little yeah. more rocky to me yeah yeah like it cut through a different way I mean, like it was gritty in Hamburg yeah I mean, they were all staying oh, in one room up till all hours playing for hours at a time and drinking beer in the you know just Oof. and if you've ever seen Paul McCartney perform live Three hours at a time. That man does not drink water yeah. when he's on stage. You know, we all know to hydrate, and he doesn't even take a sip of Just water. Just a suggestion Up for there him, sweating. That's all. Yeah, but uh, 60 years ago today. Yeah. That's amazing stuff. Yeah. It is 345 at WTMJ. I read a very interesting study. It's out of Duke University, and it's about something called ethical blindness. This is how this went down. The study takers at Duke talked to executives at companies, recruiters at companies, bosses at companies, and they wanted to find out what kind of workers get taken advantage of most often. Everybody agrees they want workers who are loyal, workers who are loyal to the company, loyal to their co-workers. They found out that those that were most loyal were most likely to be taken advantage of and exploited by their bosses. For the study... 1,400 managers were asked to read about a fictional character named John, an employee. All the managers who took part in the study read that John works for a company with a very tight budget. In an attempt to keep costs down, managers were asked how willing they would be to make John work extra hours and responsibilities without any extra pay. We need you to stay late. We need you to work more. We need you to come in on the weekend, and we're not paying you anymore. If John was labeled as loyal, managers overwhelmingly were more likely to assign him unpaid work or pile on his workload if they thought he was loyal. They were more likely to exploit a loyal John as opposed to someone who was disloyal, which was named as someone who complains, someone who's difficult, someone who isn't as great as an employee. That person got off the hook. If you were labeled as loyal, they piled it on you big time. They say that they believe this wasn't malicious. It was simply that if you're a manager and you have somebody you perceive as loyal and dedicated to the company, they are more likely to just shut up and do it. They're more likely to just take it on and say, I'll do it for the company. So they would. And they got all this stuff piled on them routinely, all the studying found. 
So you're loyal, and you get punished. You, you get, get assigned job, a lot more work. You get the job done. You get it done quietly. Or you gripe, and you're perceived as a pain in the butt. It's like, I don't want to hear him gripe. I don't want to hear her whine yep. and complain. But the Ugh. people who griped didn't gripe at the level they would get fired. They were going to keep their job. So they weren't bad workers, but if they weren't that easy to get along with, but not enough to get fired, they were going to get off scot-free. They were going to keep their job. And if you're perceived as loyal, you are going to be punished by being asked to work more for less money. So managers believe that loyalty inherently comes with a duty to make personal sacrifices for the company. So they say, well, Greg and Sandy are really, really loyal. They've been great to this company. They get it. So just have Greg do the extra project. Sandy loves being here, and she's a great person to work with, so she'll understand when we need her to work four Saturdays in a row. Mm. And so they say it wasn't even malicious. Managers weren't being malicious or trying to punish on purpose, but if you were perceived as loyal and a really good employee, you were much more likely to get exploited. And get more work to do. with the- Get it piled on you. I feel like this has been part of my career in that I have loved... Pretty much every single organization I've worked for, I love broadcasting. I love what I do. So I'm willing to get in early, stay late. Usually my name is on it, so I want it to sound good and look good. So it's like, okay, give me the ball. I, I want to be helpful, too. And then when like, they I see you doing helpful. that, yeah. they give you the ball Okay, a lot she's more clutch. Often. Yeah, like I she's pride myself on her. being a go-to or clutch or like useful. So that doesn't always work to my detriment, it's, or it doesn't always work to my favor, it sounds like. So being a great employee, sometimes you actually get punished. <laughs> I, there is a component of me that is always more willing to ask on than ask off. Like, I feel like I, I can take it. And it's not just a matter of, you know, I, I don't want to delegate or don't choose to delegate. I certainly do. Uh, but if I'm asked to, to do something, hey, can you do this? I'm in. Whatever. Like, we need to do a special show down the, the hall on ESPN from 7 to 10. Awesome. Let's do it. Um, but when I started, I mean, I was making like seven twenty-five an hour as a producer. I made more money bartending. So it, to me, in my mind was, well, show that you can do more, add on a little bit, right? Fight for your opportunity to make a little more money while showing a diverse skill set. But you always feel like you're, you're chasing rather than having the opportunity to maybe negotiate your way in and the terms before you begin your new role or whatever role you're taking out of college. I don't feel like I ever had that opportunity, so it's it, it's a longer climb. I think if if you go my route, then then getting asked <laughs> perhaps, yeah. to come to the station, perhaps. So oh, that's true. I, I guess I've always just sort of taken on a little bit more. I mean, I love a good work ethic, and I'm proud of it. But I certainly don't think it. Like, to your point, I think I have certainly been taken advantage of. And they're like, oh, well, she doesn't mind staying late. Well, she never complains. <laughs> Or certainly not to them. You know, I might gripe while I'm folding T-shirts in the back of a van and it's 110 degrees when everybody else went ahead and took their summer hours and I'm still there. Like, there might be some gripping, but I'm not going to complain because I feel like I'm part part of the organization. I feel like I am being helpful. So it's called ethical blindness because it's the belief that people do things, in this case managers, that's inconsistent with their ethics. A manager would never on purpose, consistently treat someone unfairly, but they're blind to the fact that they're doing it because they choose the path of least resistance by asking someone to take it on who always takes it on. So they're not being malicious, but 
clearly being blind to what's really happening and how people are being affected. And that disloyalty is being rewarded with less work because how many times have you seen it in your career? I remember one of my first jobs out of college, I watched a woman who, you know, used to have the inbox with an inch thick of paperwork to get done, and I would be in the backstretch like, oh, I've almost got my inbox clear, and it's 3.30. Maybe I can leave early. And it was like, oh, hey, Rebecca can't finish her work here. And then all of a sudden you get this lumping stack of papers in your inbox. Here, help Rebecca out. It's like, oh, what? Yeah, I did oh wait a minute. Done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, your reward for productivity is usually more work. Yeah, from the 262, the reward for being good at your job is more work. Nope. Usually yeah, covering is. for bad employees. Sometimes. I feel like in the long run... The work ethic pays off, and those who are Agreed. asking off or saying it's just too much and have their workload reduced, yeah, in the long run, don't end up in the same spot. Yep, work ethic wins. I like that. I like that feeling. Yep. I agree. Yep.